Um, and before I get started, there are a couple of things I wanted to say. Number one, it's Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. But at the same time, I want to acknowledge that sometimes this can be a hard day. Maybe you've lost a mother in the last year or two, and that's the kind of loss that never completely goes away. Also, maybe you're someone who desperately wants to be a mom, and you haven't had that opportunity yet, or it's been a painful journey. Um, I have four children, but I went through secondary infertility um, between number two and number three, and I had some miscarriages. So I, my heart goes out to those of you who really long to be a mom, but it just it hasn't happened yet. And so I just want to acknowledge that sometimes it can be a painful holiday. And then there are those of you who are like, nope, don't want to be a mom, and that's okay. And I just want to acknowledge that as well, because sometimes we can get this kind of social pressure that goes in, well, this is what it's supposed to look like. And God has a different journey for everybody. Um, but I just want to encourage you where you are in the journey that God, they're telling me to switch to this. I can do this too. Oh, wow, that's really different when loud. Um, but God has a journey that's specific to each of you. And so just in the middle of everything that's going on, I wanted to take a moment just to acknowledge that and just say, you know, sometimes it's the elephant in the room. I can remember uh, my husband and I got married when I was 20. I graduated from college early, or 21. Um, but then I went to law school and all this kind of stuff. So we waited a few years to have kids. And there was, it was kind of painful, even though I was choosing not to have children yet, it was still could be kind of painful. So I'm praying for God's grace for all of you, no matter what this holiday feels like for you. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say is it's a real pleasure to be with you today, especially as you're going through a transition. Our pastor just announced, um, I think it was three Sundays ago, that they're headed back to the missions field in a year. So we are. I go to Connection Point, which is one of the AOG churches here on the west side. And so we are getting ready to go through the same transition y'all are. And that's hard. It's scary. It can be, you can kind of go, God, what, what's your plan? Where are you in this? And I also know that it's an opportunity where if we're not really careful and on guard, that Satan can come in and destroy community. Because one of the ways that we demonstrate God's grace and his love and his peace and his kindness is by the way we treat each other. And so sometimes in those transitions, which is why I loved the prayer guide that you had, um, earlier. I would really encourage you, capture that and be intentional about praying over that consistently. Because this is one of those pivot points. As I was driving up here this morning, I was just really thinking about it again as I drove through this part of West Side. I live on the South Side, so I don't get here very often. I get to Purdue and that's about it. Or I get to Connection Point. Um, you guys are strategically placed. You are very strategically placed in West Lafayette. And I just want to remind you, I know you're probably aware of this, you live in it, but Purdue is right there. You've got 40,000 students. You've got the largest international student population in the United States. If Satan can destroy your witness, if he can break up this community, he's one. And instead, you are strategically placed to be one more arm of God reaching out to all of those students right there. You're in walking distance. For them. And there are lots of great options on campus, but at the same time, you're here strategically, so please don't lose sight of that. Um, okay, so I'll get off that little soapbox. Uh, but I just I want to remind you of that, because in the middle of transition, in the middle of hard, it can be really easy to lose sight of why you're here. 
And so I just encourage you, I challenge you, really pray through those prayer guides. Um, and a little bit about me, because you might be wondering, okay, why is she up there? It's a good question. So I was privileged to grow up in a family where God was first. And it's really interesting because when uh, my parents got married, my dad wasn't saved and he was on his way to Vietnam. And there are so many different ways that my life could have turned out differently, but for the grace of God. But by the time my dad got back from Vietnam, he, and, he got saved. My mom had been saved at a Billy Graham crusade, had grown up in church. And so they both kind of got on fire for God. So by the time I came around, they were chasing after God's heart. And there are so many times I'm grateful for that. Because if I'd been born earlier, it could have been a very different journey. Um, and so grew up in the faith. Um, just have, I don't really remember not loving God and not having Jesus as my Savior. Although if you were like, okay, when was that decision point? I'd be like, no, I don't know. I just, it, it's just always been part of my DNA. And then, um, you know, in D.C., I lived in D.C. for eight years and was in great churches there. And then we moved here and we've been in Connection Point basically from week two. Uh, and that was almost 20 years ago now, which is really crazy. I came for two years. Um, and I'm an attorney, which is why this passage is actually really fun to kind of talk about because I'm an attorney by training. And then I teach at Purdue. Um, but I also write novels. I've got 34 Christian fiction novels. Uh, so I, there are lots of different ways that I've been able to kind of live out my faith in different forums. So in some ways, it's a, a natural extension, but it's a real honor to be with you. So as we get ready to get into this passage, I just want to take a moment to pray over it, and then we'll start digging in to what may feel like a really familiar parable. And if you've grown up in the church, sometimes that can be hard. I don't know about you, I can't think of how many sermons I've heard on the prodigal son. And yet the amazing thing about scripture is that it's fresh and it's new every time. Because the Holy Spirit just comes in and infuses it. So Father God, we just come before you. And I thank you for this opportunity to just bring your word. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide my words and my thoughts. I ask that you would open hearts to the individual takeaways that you have for each person here. And that's the amazing thing about you. You can, I can speak one set of words, and yet you can have it be 50, 100 different ways. And so I just ask that you would speak directly and that I would get out of the way. May all that we say and do be to your honor and your glory. All right, so we are in Luke 18. And I'm really glad I brought this up because there is no way I'm going to be able to read that back there. Um, but Luke 18 is part of one of Jesus' sermons. He's out preaching, and he's transitioning into a new parable. Um, and we're going to be looking at the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 through 8. So then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Doesn't he sound like a great guy? And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, and a lot of the translations say because the widow is giving me a black eye. So it's not just bothering. It's not just nagging. It's like she's beating him up with her consistency. 
I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And I think that's, yep. Um, And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice. And quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So there are lots of different ways you can go with a passage like this. And I really spent a lot of time praying about it because I'm like, there's, we could focus on justice. I mean, that's definitely something that we're seeing again. And God's really making it clear that we've got some things we need to deal with. But there are lots of ways that we can exercise justice as his arms and feet in our community. You can get involved with Matrix. I got my Matrix mug over there. You know, Lafayette Urban Ministries, Boys and Girls Clubs, um, reaching out to students. I'll never forget when I came across to study, and don't ask me now what it was, Gallup or one of those, where with all the students who come from other countries, most of them will never see the inside of a U.S. household. And my husband and I went, that's not okay. And I can't touch all of the students there, but I can touch the ones in my classes. And one of the hardest things about COVID has been, we haven't been able to have students at our house. And so I'm really eager to start changing that again because it's so meaningful to them, even if it's a group of 20 or 30, to be able to have them into your home. It makes an impact because they feel so alone. But I was, at first I was like, oh, justice is where I'm supposed to go. And God was like, yeah, no, not really. And I'm like, okay, great. So which way are we going? And it really was prayer. And I just want to encourage you, don't kind of shut down and be like, oh, I know all about prayer. I know all about persistence. Um, Because I think it's one of those disciplines where we encounter God. We encounter God in community when we come together as a body. We encounter God in communion, in worship. But prayer is another way. And I'm just going to speak for myself. There are real times when I don't pray as much as I could, should, would like to. And so I've tried to build different ways into it. Like I hit campus and there are a lot of days where if uh, a day like today, I probably wouldn't do it. But I try to walk around like the buildings and just pray and ask God, you know, come. I'm like, God, come bring revival here. Make yourself known to all these students. You know, they're all out of context. They're all in a new place. And so they're open in a way that they may not be in other times. And so that's one way I've tried to kind of build in some intentional prayer. It's kind of a prompt. I hit campus, and I immediately go on like this little 10-minute walk. But there are a lot of other ways that I'm not praying as persistently or as much as I should. And I think a lot of us live there. But it's a place where we can encounter God. And so if we can, if, you know, if we can be stopped from doing that, we can still be Christians, but we're not going to experience God in the fullness of everything he has for us. So the first thing I want to do is real quickly look at the passage in context. Because we've always got to think about what was Jesus saying? How would it have been received to the people who were around him? It's real easy to immediately put it in our cultural context. And when we do that, we can miss part of what Jesus was actually saying. Because the context is very different. So one of the first ways that um, it shows up in context. And I'm going to pull this out. I should have pulled it out immediately. Sorry about that. There we go. You can tell I'm a teacher. 
Uh, by the way, this is going to come. <laughs> so he has two goals in this passage. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm really digging into a passage is if I pulled out my folder, you'd see I printed it off in like six different versions. Because especially when it's one that I feel like, oh, I know, been there, done that, read it. How many times have we read Luke? How many times have we heard sermons on it? So I really wanted to kind of do like a parallel comparison across lots of different versions to see, because every version will pull out a little something different. So I like the message, which is, it's not necessarily a direct translation. It's more of a paraphrase. Um, but it pulls it into today's language. So it's, it can be a fresh way to see something. And then the Passion Translation is like the message, only slightly different. Um, and so right now, that's the one when I'm really trying to see it with fresh eyes that I really go to. Um, and so it's like the Psalms, Proverbs, and then I think he's got most of the New Testament. But I was also looking at the Holcomb and um, the ESV, the NIV, NLT. You know, just it's so easy with all the tools we have available to us to really kind of dig in and see, okay, what is it? And so when it's, you know, we're supposed to pray, but it's always pray, pray consistently, keep praying. And there's, it's constant, right? We're not supposed to stop. And as I was digging into some of the commentaries, one of the things that they kept talking about is, you know, we tend to look at prayer and go, oh, well, if we pray more than once for something, it's actually a lack of faith because it's supposed to be a one and done. God, we believe you and I've prayed it once. So if I keep praying it, that's not faith. But that's not what Jesus is demonstrating here. This is very much we're supposed to keep coming and 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 keep coming, and keep coming until we get an answer. And then never give up. So the Passion Translation says never stop or lose hope. The message, never quit. ESV, don't lose heart. Holcomb, don't become discouraged. And have you ever had a situation where you were praying and God didn't answer? And that can really impact our faith. And here, though, Jesus is saying, keep going after it. Keep going. Keep going. Don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. Be persistent. And... There is something to it, and we're going to get into it more, but there's something about that coming back. And if we really believe prayer is an encounter with God, then God can keep changing our heart. He can keep showing us what he's doing instead of, um, like Christy was saying at the beginning, you know, we, everything's at our fingertips. We're just like, oh, it should be instant, right? It's a microwave world. I can get online and I can have 15 versions of the Bible with fingertips like that. Why can't God just move? And yet Jesus is modeling something very different from that experience in this passage. So he uses two people, a judge and a widow, and he uses a unique setting, a courtroom. And when you look at the judge, there's a couple really interesting things about him. It's very clear he doesn't fear God. He's just, he's not interested in what God has to say, which if you're thinking about Jesus's culture, it was a very religious culture. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees. They're out there enforcing not just the Ten Commandments, but all the rules from Exodus, and then all the ways that the Pharisees went and expanded on it. So it is a very religious culture. And here's a guy who's like, I don't care about God. Just not interested. 
He doesn't matter. I am at a high place in my culture, in my society. I have a lot of authority. I have a lot of power. I don't need God. Then he also has no respect for man, which is a judge. That is not a good place to be because you are the ultimate authority, the ultimate physical authority in a lot of ways. And so to have someone in that kind of position who doesn't care about God and he doesn't care about man, I just imagine a bulldozer who's like, I got it. I am the wisdom in the room. Nobody else matters. What I say goes. And so no fear of other opinions, thick-skinned, never gave God a thought. Not necessarily a great person to have sitting in authority over you. And then you have the widow who has insignificant status. Not only is she a woman at a point where they were basically owned and you had no value apart from marrying and having kids, really. And then she's poor because she doesn't have anyone to provide for her. So if you go back through the Old Testament, like Ruth is a great example of this. There are certain rules that are in place to help protect the widows, to help protect the poor, but she doesn't have much. And we don't know if she has kids, but because she's having to raise her defense, there's probably a good chance, not only is is she widowed, but she doesn't have sons who can protect her. So she has to do it on her own. Then she's adamant in her pursuit of justice. So here's a person who has no status in her culture. She has no status, no standing, but she keeps showing up and keeps coming. And it's so clear that she's just like, she's not just showing up meekly. Because remember, she's showing up and basically the judge is like, she's going to give me a black eye. She's so persistent. And I get it with the black eye image. I get this, like she's pounding him with her words and with her persistence. And so because of that, eventually the judge is like, okay, I have to deal with this because she's wearing me out. That's not this sweet little meek person coming up and being like, can, can I say something again? Don't forget about me. It's not that. And then there's a courtroom. So this is my environment, which was kind of fun because originally it was like, oh, Luke 18, 1 to 8. Okay, well, that's, it's a good passage. I can, I can talk about that. And I was like, wait a minute. This is my space. This is where I live professionally. Now, not as much as I used to, but I still do adoptions. And because that's part of my ministry to those who don't have a forever home, who don't have a secure place. And so I really do treat it as ministry. But um, it's kind of fun because with adoptions, the judge smiles when I walk in because it's happy law for the most part. Not always, but for the most part, it's happy. there's happiness at the end of it versus, you know, normally you're walking in because someone's not doing what they're supposed to. And in a sense, adoption is still that, but it's the end of the process. It's when the permanence is happening. So there's one person who has power in a courtroom, if you've never been there, and I hope you haven't, because if you have, it's because someone's not doing what they're supposed to. Um, And so the judge has the authority. What they say goes. As an attorney, I'm trying to sway his opinion or her opinion, but they can decide what they want to. There's a little bit of accountability because I can go to a higher court if we believe they've done the wrong decision. But there's a lot of power in the judge at the front of the room. There are clear rules 
Probably two years of law school is learning just the rules, civil procedure, criminal procedure, evidence, and then the different rules for the specific subsets of law. So there's a clear process. And I was doing some research, and it was hard to tell if what I was finding for Jewish courts was truly from back at Jesus's time or more modernized. But there are rules there, too. I mean, all you have to do is look at Leviticus, Numbers, um, Jethro talking to Moses about, hey, you're wearing yourself out. This is not healthy. There needs to be a, you can't do it all. Bring people up alongside you to help with that. So there were still plenty of rules that were being applied. But there's space to move and adjust. So Proverbs, I think it's 21, verse 1. I looked it up, but I guess I didn't put it there, where God controls the heart of the king. He controls the heart of the judge. And I want to remind you of that because that's important when we're talking about prayer too. And, and we're going to go through a lot of passages where God actually is inviting us into the conversation to change his heart. But we can, by prayer, we're partnering with God to change the hearts of others as well. Sometimes that's our heart. Sometimes that's the heart of other people. But don't lose sight of that. There's a reason that's in Proverbs, because God wants to remind us that the heart can be changed. He can influence that, and he invites us into that process. So now let's talk about the passage as it applies to today. So uh, you may have heard of Dallas Willard. Um, I'm reading right now The Divine Conspiracy because one of my friends who's over serving in Kyrgyzstan was telling me about it, and it's dense. It's my kids are like, why is it taking you so long to read this book? I'm like, because if I'm not going to, I read really fast. So with nonfiction, I have to sit there and kind of underline it and process it. Otherwise, I could have been done in two days, but I would have missed most of it. But he talks about this parable in chapter six or chapter seven. I'm forgetting which chapter I'm on. But he says the main teaching here is that we should expect prayer to proceed in a manner of a relationship between persons. And his chapter on prayer is actually phenomenal because it talks about how it's coming out of community and applied to community here and community vertically. And it's an opportunity for us to step into a deeper community with God. And the way we pray can actually be a reflection of how we're seeing God. And that was one of the things he was just really reminding me of as I kept thinking about this and going to different books I have on prayer and going to different passages. It's just the idea, it really is an extension of whatever relationship we actually have with God. And it's a good way to start thinking about what's my identity when I come to God. And I'm really fortunate. I have a great father. He's earthly, so he's not perfect. But I don't have a lot of the problems of seeing God as the father that some people do when you've had just a really bad earthly father example. So I'm very blessed in that respect. But we also are his adopted children. So we're supposed to step in not as just a servant, but as a child. And there's a difference. And I think that difference really comes out in how we pray. Because yes, we're his servant. We are directed by him. We are to follow his leading and follow what he tells us to do. But if we step in as a child, I walk in with my head held up. I walk in knowing I am welcome. My, when my kids come to me, and, okay, I've not been perfect at this. I've grown in it because I can be very, I'm an 
Enneagram 3, I'm a type A, I can get very focused on what's in front of me and what I'm supposed to be doing. But when my kids come to me, I've learned to stop and to give them my attention because they're important. They are my child. I'm, I will discipline them, but I will always love them. And they always have my heart. And if that's how I approach my kids, how much more does the perfect father do that with us as his kids? So we're his kids. Um, we walk in as we're not peers because he is God. He is the father. He is the king. But I can walk in knowing I am welcome. I am invited. And it is a conversation he wants. And that's going to change my ability to be persistent. Because think about our daughter, our 12-year-old, uh, she turns 13 tomorrow. She's the... Um, She's my rainbow baby, my first rainbow baby. And it was, almost, it was actually kind of a gift how she's tied to Mother's Day because of just the journey to get to having her. But she's in the middle of a health issue. She's got an inflammation issue with her eyes. And I have to give her a shot every Saturday, or yeah, every Saturday night. And I went to law school and not medical school for a lot of reasons, and needles are top of the list. So it is a traumatic experience every week for both of us. And last night, she was pulling attitude again. And I get it. I was the kid who had that chronic health issue growing up. And so I've been the kid, and now I'm the parent. And she's just doing this thing where she's like, no, I, this isn't working. I don't want it. I don't want to go back to the doctor. I don't know why I have to get this. They're talking about adding a second shot, which I'm like, fantastic. This is awesome. Thank you. Because it's hard enough getting the one in. And, but at the same time, I'm like, we just don't know. But you better believe I've been praying for almost two years now. And I know that in one instant, one moment, God could change it. He could just wipe it out. I know that. I have seen it. I ha it's all over scripture. The woman who reaches out and all she had to do was touch his robe and she was healed. There were no words exchanged. It was just the act of faith. And I'm like, God, I don't get why you aren't healing her. I don't get why you didn't heal me as a kid. But I keep going back because I know he can do it. And I believe he can do it. And I don't understand. I do not know why he hasn't just done it. But I have to believe he's working something out in her. And he's been working something out in me. Because it is touching one of my wounds with God. Growing up and going up for prayer and going up for prayer and going up for prayer and going up for prayer. And he eventually healed me, but it was a long process. And so now to have to walk that with my child, it's a wound that he's like, we're going to keep dealing with this until it's not painful, until you're fully reconciled on this. And I thought it was done. I thought it was taken care of. But now walking through this with Rebecca, I'm like, okay, God, I guess you still got some things you need to do in me on this too. But it's that persistence. That doesn't mean I stop asking because he is a good father. And there have been times I've had to cling to that with all that is in me and go back to, okay, God, I know this is who you are. I know this is your character. I may not be experiencing it right now. I may not feel it right now, but I'm going to be persistent in coming back to it because I know this is true and my feelings aren't what's real. What the word says is what's true. So 
our identity is going to be revealed through prayer. How we see God, how we see ourselves in God's eyes is going to be revealed through prayer. So God is our judge. And the great thing about this is he is not the earthly judge. Can we all go, amen, thank you, Jesus? But he is still the judge. He is judging us. Um, and that's where, again, in the prayer prompts we went through this morning, forgive us as we forgive others. That's part of what a judge does. He can extend justice. He can extend mercy. And so we can't lose sight of that. That is part of who God is. But because of our identity as his children, it's a different approach, or it can be. So Abraham knew him as judge. And in Genesis 18, so the fun thing about this passage is, and I'm going to come back to it a little bit later as well, but this is, he's just coming out in Genesis 17 is where there's the covenant of circumcision. Isaac is promised to him. So they're coming out of this really amazing, intimate experience of God and Abraham. And then at the beginning of Genesis 18, the Lord is like, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm going to do, which I think is really interesting. He's like, I don't have to tell him. I don't have to tell him what I'm going to do, but I'm choosing to bring Abraham into this process. And it wasn't for God. It was for Abraham. And so Abraham, though, as they're going through this, and we're going to go look at this again in a minute, but far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous, because this is about Sodom and Gomorrah when they're negotiating back and forth. Will you spare Sodom if there are 50 righteous people? Will you spare it if there's 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20? Which, look at that. Most of us think if we were to negotiate with God like that, he'd smite us. We'd be looking for the lightning. And yet, at the beginning of Genesis 18, you see God intentionally choosing to open the door so Abraham can have this back and forth with him. And it's not to change God's heart, although sometimes he will change his mind. It was to do something in Abraham, to help Abraham see who he is and the kind of relationship he can have with God. Will you kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The psalmist knows him as judge. So, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. And there are tons. I mean, you start doing a search for judge or justice in the Psalms, it comes up all over the place. These were just a few of them. A couple of them are from David, one's from Asaph. And then God invites us. So one of the takeaways, one of the applications is I want to remind you, God invites us into the process. So um, Daniel 10, we have to be persistent. So this is another one of my favorite when it comes to prayer, because Daniel's had this vision. He's not sure what's going on. He's praying. He's asking God, and he's praying, and he's asking God, and he's praying, and he's asking God. And okay, this is Daniel, the guy with the visions, the guy in the lion's den, the guy who knows God really, really well. I think I know God well. I'm not sure I'd have the faith he did going into the lion's den. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. That is an amazing kind of faith that I want to have, but I honestly don't know. If I, if I had to do that, I'm like, I want to believe I'd be able to do it right. Nine, you know, the nine-foot-tall statue, bow down. Nope, not going to do it. 
And so what I love about this passage, though, is when the angel gets there, he explains what was going on. And he says, I was sent the moment you started praying. God answered immediately, but there was interference. There was a spiritual battle that was happening where he was, the angel was being stopped by a demon, one of Satan's lieutenants. And so it took 21 days for him to get through. But Daniel's persistent prayer is part of what allowed him to get through, which then sent the archangel to come and fight on his behalf so the angel could get through. We have to be persistent. Just because we haven't gotten the answer immediately doesn't mean God isn't moving. We just can't necessarily see it yet. And I don't remember, I meant to look it up and I forgot. Elisha, I think it was, they're fighting and they're like, oh my gosh, we're overwhelmed. We're going to die. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes. It was Elisha or Elijah. And then he sees the heavenly host. And the servant goes, oh, okay, we're good. God's moving. We just can't always see it with our physical eyes. And then God won't delay, but we get to join the conversation. So, you know, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Far be it from you. And there's this conversation that's happening. I really encourage you to look at it because I really, I do think in our context, in our Christian culture, we go, oh, you prayed the prayer of faith. You pray it once and you're done. And this is a great example of God welcomes the conversation. He wants it for us, not for him, but for us so that we would be changed in our relationship with him. And then in Exodus, so in this one, if you go back in chapter 30 31, there's the Ten Commandments. God, you know, Moses is up on the mountain. He sees God. All of this amazing communication is happening. He comes down, Exodus 32, you've got the golden calf. Not the brightest moment. I mean, they literally are days and weeks from the Red Sea splitting. Miracle? You can't deny? And now they're questioning where God is because Moses has been up on the mountain with him for too long in their minds. And so they create the golden calf. And then, you know, in Genesis 33, God's telling Moses, you're leaving. Here's where you're going. I'm going to give it to you, but I'm not going with you anymore. That's going to be part of the punishment for the golden calf incidents. And Moses, again, goes right back to God and goes, don't you dare leave me with these people. The only reason I'm here is because you sent me. So you better go with us. And it's, I mean, would you use that kind of language with God? Don't you dare leave me with these people. This is your fault. And yes, that's the kind of conversation Moses is having with him. Look at the Psalms. There's this real conversation happening. And yes, God already knows all of that. But these are examples of the type of conversations he welcomes and he wants to have with us. Oh, and then there at the end, because I am pleased with you, I will do the very thing you asked. And I know you by name. So that's at the end of Moses getting in God's face. And I really imagine him going, don't you dare leave me with these people. And God's like, I'm pleased with you. That's great. Let's go. We don't think of it that way, do we? 
So here's a couple of things, you know, questions you can be thinking and asking yourself as you're praying. Am I willing to persist? And that's very clear. That's one of the things that God or that Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. So I already talked about, you know, Becca's eyes. I had headaches like 20, uh, 365 days a week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the time I was six till I was like 27. There are days I'll get a headache now, and I'm like, how on earth did I function at all? And so, I mean, we're talking specialists, all that, but persistence, 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 and God did show up. Was it the way I wanted, the way my parents wanted? Nope. We would have liked that instant touch, but it did happen. Um, so breakthrough in any form often requires persistence as well. Sometimes God does it in an instant, but are you willing to persist? Are you going to keep going? Are you going to keep praying? Also, do you believe he will answer? That's kind of a foundational question. Do you have the faith to believe God cares enough about you that he will answer? That you can expect a response from him? For me, that often means I have to be willing to shut up and get my brain to quiet so I can hear that answer which is not easy for me. My brain just goes and goes and goes and goes. And so to get to a place where I can hear his answer is also important. Or do I believe my prayers won't touch his heart? If I'm coming as a slave, as I'm coming as someone who's completely unworthy, then I'm probably not coming with any kind of expectation that God actually hears and that he actually cares. But if I'm coming as a child, as I'm, if I'm coming as an adopted heir, that completely changes how I approach God. Not to manipulate him, but it changes my expectations. And then this is also, you know, I am to pray for what concerns me. And many people have found prayer impossible because they thought they should only pray for wonderful but remote needs. They actually had little or no interest in or knowledge of. So again, from Dallas Willard. And isn't that true? We often go, oh, that's too small. I'll just handle it. I won't bother God with that. Newsflash, he cares about everything that, cares, that burdens you, that you care about. And so when all we're focused on is, okay, I just need to be praying for the missionaries across the world. That's really important. That is a good thing to do. But one thing I have found personally, my husband was on staff at our church for a couple years in a finance and missions role. So we took young people to Jordan and Istanbul. It is much easier for me to pray for those parts of the world now because I've been there. I've walked in them. I have met the people who are working there. It's much, much easier because now it's a closer thing. I understand the need. So it's easier to pray because I've been, I've seen, I know the people who are working there. But don't negate how much he cares about the details. It can be the things like, what job do I take? And sometimes he's going to be, I don't care. I can use you anywhere. That can be his answer. But he wants our heart turned toward him. And if we're praying, if we're seeking his face, then our heart's turned and we can be used wherever we are. So don't think there's anything that's too small to take to him. And then will I be real and honest with God? I think sometimes we put on this persona, which is so silly because he already knows everything about us. 
I mean, as I was thinking about this even again this morning and praying over it, it was like, it's kind of like Adam when he and Eve eat the apple and they put the fig leaves on. Like, this is going to, God's not going to notice that we now know we're naked. Hello? He knew the moment you took the bite. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to put up a couple of the Psalms, because the Psalms are a wonderful reflection of David is real. If you go back and especially like some of those first 20 Psalms, it's kill him, Lord. Get rid of my enemies. Smite them. Did God actually do that? No. But did he kill David for being like, this is where I'm at, God, and I just need you to get rid of him because I'm done? No. He was a man after God's own heart because he knew he could be real and honest with God. We can too. God wants that kind of relationship with us through prayer. So don't think you have to pretend it's all okay, or don't think you're not supposed to pray until you are okay. It's through prayer that God makes us okay. That's when he changes our heart, and often it's all about us. It's about changing us, changing our heart. And everything else is a detail that he can do. But prayer brings us closer to God so he can start changing us. So you can't hide from God. He knows it all anyway. And then you may have read Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He's got a chapter in there on prayer. And sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray and we don't get an answer. And I liked this kind of quick outline because he's like, what could the block be? Perhaps we're praying wrongly. Perhaps we're not praying in accordance with Scripture. It's important to know how prayer happens in the Bible. It's important to know Scripture so we can be praying God's words back to him. Maybe we're just not quite praying right. And so then we could go, okay, God, is this why I'm not getting an answer? Perhaps something within us needs changing. And we're too focused on the external. And God's like, let's start with you. And then you might find that it's already taken care of because you've changed. Perhaps there are new principles of prayer to be learned. There's all kinds of great books on prayer um, where you can learn different ways and different tools. And perhaps we just need patience and persistence. So there's lots of different reasons. We may not be getting the answer. But listen, make adjustments, and try again. So I hope you've got some takeaways, some things that you can apply to your life. I know it was a good reminder for me just to walk through and go, oh, okay, God, yep, I need to be a little more persistent in areas. I was telling Becca that again last night. I'm like, you don't know what God's doing. I can see how he's working in her through this. That little girl is going to have steel, which kind of scares me. I'm like, God, why does she need that much steel in her life? But I can see that the fruit of it. Do I like it? No. No, I really don't. I don't like that we're having to walk this journey, but I can see how God's using it. So be persistent. Don't stop. Keep going back to God. You are a child of God. You are a son and a daughter who can walk into his throne room repeatedly. Not to manipulate him, but to ask for what you need. And he wants to have that conversation with you.